Welcome to Conversations from Here with me, Dana Ziegler. These candid, unfettered, and unedited talks create connection and inspiration across the human story. These are the sharings of how we came to be ourselves, how we found our life's purpose, and how we made it from there to here. I speak with performers, artists, artisans, creators, innovators, entrepreneurs, and other remarkable people about what they do and how they came to do it. Also, the music you hear on this show is performed, as always, by Brad Watson. Today I speak with the super-talented multi-instrumentalist and composer Fuzby Morse, he has played with everyone from Lou Reed, Robbie Robertson, Peter Gabriel, Sting, U2, to everyone in between. We take a look back to his childhood where he met some of his idols, among them Frank Zappa and Aretha Franklin, and follow with his time in Rome at Berklee College of Music in Boston, his formative years with the band that was to later become the Cars, his introduction to film scoring, his long association with Microsoft icon Paul Allen, and further global adventures in music. A great talk and a great time. Here's me and Fuzby. All right. Hello, my darling friend, Fuzby Morse. Thank you for <laughs> doing this. I so appreciate it. Uh, my pleasure, Dana. It's great to see you after all this time. I know. And, you know, that's one of the hardest things about the way it's been lately is that we haven't been able to kibitz at the kibitz room and be around our friends and and you know have that warmth and camaraderie that we're so used to having so it's just such a yeah. bizarre thing but you know the when i think of you not only do i think of the flute <laughs> but also but also just you as a monumental uh a monumental talent and and entity in the music industry as as a composer and as a musician, and um, I thought maybe we would start back at the very beginning, which is, and it was- Back at the dawn of time. Back to dawn of time <laughs> with Busby Morse in, in <laughs> Connecticut, right? Yeah, yep. Stanford, Connecticut is, is where I started. And then uh, your, your mom and dad, did they have, who, who was it who had the music industry connection? Neither of them. Um, my father was a, a writer and a TV producer, TV news producer. Um, he worked for CBS and sort of the golden age of, of news, mm -hmm. which we're, not, we're certainly not in right now. <laughs> Definitely um, not. Yeah. We miss Walter uh, Cronkite. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, when I was a little kid, I used to go to the CBS cutting room, which is where they would edit stuff. And, and I'd go there in my little baseball uniform. And I uh, played my imaginary game of baseball and Walter Cronkite was second base. <laughs> so I used to slide into him, he used to pat me on the head, you know. Uh, but my father was the uh, writer, director of the show See It Now with Edward R. Murrow, mm -hmm. which was a very influential show. And then he was the uh, producer for CBS Reports mm -hmm. uh, for years. And then, uh, so yeah. Neither my mother or my father particularly had any musical talent or any obvious musical talent. My father had none. My mother, my mother can sing a little. 
But where did you, where, where did music come in for you? Were you a kid when you, did you, were you taking lessons or were you just drawn to it or what, how did it begin? I was drawn to it, um, you know, without even knowing it. Uh, my mother likes to recount the story that one of the first things I said as a little, little kid that made any sense was, I want to be a banjo player and a man. <laughs> wow. Calm, I probably, I think I've, ach I've achieved manhood, but still to this day, it's strange. All the instruments I play, I've never played a banjo. I should get one one of these days. You should. You should. Yeah. Absolutely. It so would be an obvious one to play, yeah. So what, what, what was the first instrument then for you? Well, uh, my sister, who's five years older, was taking piano lessons. And I was scared of the piano teacher because he was the first bald guy I ever saw. <laughs> His name was Mr. Thrailkale. And so when he was there, I used to go hide under the bed or just, I, he just scared me to death. But my sister would finish her lesson and then I'd go downstairs and I, my legs weren't even close to reaching the pedals, but I would fool around on the piano. So that was really the first one. And I just took to it very naturally. And then I started playing, um, I wasn't big enough to play a guitar, but I had a baritone ukulele. That was my first stringed instrument. And that was probably about seven when I started playing that. And I think I got my first guitar at eight or nine. First electric guitar, nine or 10. So did you uh, pace your sister musically? Did she kind of give it up after a while and you continued on with music? Yeah. Yeah, she kind of gave up on it. Now now she sings in a choir in Nashville and she sings. But yeah, she gave up playing really early. But I used to sneak down and play and my parents would go, oh my God, that's him playing. You know? Yeah. But when the piano teacher would come around, I'd go run away. He's frightened the hell out of me. Plus he had a, a weird yellow car that also scared me. <laughs> a yellow car and a bald head. <laughs> that's it. Oh, oh. <laughs> ah! Ah! <laughs> Terrifying combination. Wow. Yeah, yeah. Know, yes. Something out of a David Lynch film or something. He really, but, and, and it was, he was called Mr. Thrail Kale, which is even worse, but yeah. um, I was drawn to instruments right away and my parents were wonderfully encouraging. Every time I showed interest in an instrument, they'd uh, either make sure I got lessons. I started taking like classical guitar lessons, probably at about eight or nine. Um, on a you know nylon string guitar, but I was already into rock and roll and stuff. But mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I did that for a while. But they always made sure that I would get lessons and in, or instruments, and they were very encouraging. See, yeah. that's a, that's so important because a lot of people, you know, when they start pursuing whether it's music or acting or whatever, when they're young, their parents are not necessarily encouraging of that they they'll, oh. they'll say, well you know you can do that on the side but you gotta have you know whatever but your parents were just kind of all in they were all in and um from the time i finally got a little record player in my room even though i would take lessons i learned more from playing along with records on whatever and it's funny i had a i had a chair in my room i had a set of drumsticks and this chair just sounded really good. You know, mm -hmm. certain like car dashboards and chairs sound good as drums. So I used to, I used to beat this thing to death and play along with things and play guitar along. And uh, it's funny because uh, I heard Frank Zappa say when he was asked, how did he start playing? He said, 
I used to beat the shit out of a chair in my room. Finally, my parents <laughs> gave up and got me a drum set. I went, that's what I did, you know. Yes. But I never, ever, I never got a drum set. Yeah. Well, and Eric Clapton famously uh, played along to Muddy Waters records. Yeah. It was like his, his introduction, like, was really infatuated with American blues. Yeah. And, like, he just wanted to be a Delta blues man as a, as a, as a young white English kid. Right, <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Well, <laughs> you know, there was, it was so amazing in those days. You'd get a record and you'd put it on, and I'd be fascinated by it. And there was a lot of people I loved. And then I'd just play along and just imagine sort of inserting myself into that song or into that band, into that music, and find something that worked. And I did that for years. And there's without even knowing really what I was doing. That's well, and that's probably like why it was second nature. Because when you're a kid, you're so open and you don't have, there are no limits about, um, well, what if I don't do it right kind of thing. It's yeah. just, when you're young, you just, you're just pure, you know, and, um, and, and you mentioned, you mentioned Frank Zappa. So it didn't take long before you met him at age 13. What, what were the, what was the circumstance of that meeting? Well, he was already a big hero of mine, and um, I'd listened to his stuff a lot. And when I was 13, he played in, uh, in Central Park. Um, and I was just blown away. And I, I walked up to the backstage area, which was outdoors. So it was just like a fenced-in area. But you could see, I could see there where he was. I just walked up to the fence, and he saw this little kid there, you know, and he kind of came over. And, uh, you know, my voice hadn't even changed yet or anything. It was like, Mr. Zappo, you know. <laughs> and he just started talking to me. He looked at me like, who's this little guy, you know. But he couldn't have been friendlier. And then he just said, you know, whenever I come back to New York, come say hi, you know. Uh, and, and, and he played in New York a lot. So that led to a whole bunch of adventures. I uh, got to know him quite well. But I, I, I've met many of my heroes. It's kind of like, something you're magnetized to someone and somehow that magnetism ends up causing you to actually meet. Yeah. So I've ended up meeting a lot of the people I really wanted to and playing with some of them. You know? And, and Aretha was one of those people, right? Because you got to witness yeah. the recording. What, what is that story? I was even younger when that happened. Um, I had a little band, you know, I was like 10, 11, or maybe 11 and the drummer and, that band's father used to play on all these recording sessions in New York. He was a string player. And so he used to do all the sessions at Atlantic Records. And so my little friend Freddie Green and I would get invited to these sessions. And they're almost all black artists, serious R&B, and we're these two little white kids from the suburbs, you know. So we got invited to the session, which was Aretha and it was um, like the house that Jack built and stuff from around that era, you know, uh, around the Lady Soul era and an incredible height of Aretha. And, and these sessions were full King Curtis orchestra, the background singers, the sweet inspirations, you know, like string players, horn players, all these heavy duty people. And, um, and, Produced by Tom Dowd, who's a famous producer, arranged by Arif Mardin, Jerry Wexler, all the famous Atlantic people would be there. And we'd be sitting in the control room and everyone just accepted us being there as long as we were cool. 
And then a little breaks, we go out and meet people and go, yeah, hey, my name's Bruno. How you doing, man? You know? <laughs> and it was incredible the way Aretha did it because they would do everything but her at the same time. Mm -hmm. They would do the strings, the horns, the rhythm section, all that stuff. And then Aretha would come and sit down at the piano and do her lead vocal always at the piano when she's playing along and sing. And uh, every time I'd like go out in a break and pass her, she was really cool to us. She was just like, she would have made you a nice bowl of soup or something, you know, mm. she was kind of like Aunt Aretha. And I got to sit and watch her do these incredible vocals and play piano. And that was a lifelong inspiration. I guys get goosebumps even thinking about it. Mm -hmm. But that was even before meeting Zappa. That was that, that was, uh, and we got to see what Herbie Mann, we went to the, I think the Rascals, various sessions that were at the, but Aretha's were the most astonishing. Mm -hmm. And then you might've been there that night, but the bass player on that session, on those sessions, Jerry Jamat, yes, came and sat in with the Fockers. Mm -hmm. And I said, I was one of those kids who was at the, and they, you know, they kind of remember, we stuck out, we were these two little white kids. <laughs> yeah. you know? He said, oh yeah, look at you all grown up. And we had a great time, great reunion, but all those years later. I, I remembered that because that's how the story came up that you told me after after that night and you said you know who that guy was and, and yeah so so yeah magical, fantastic yeah so there's another hero I got to meet and, and, and witness them recording and uh, I just been lucky I got I got pumped with great music at a very early age and uh, it's it's never let me down you know and then did you um, what what came first Rome or Berkeley College of Music, which, because I know you were overseas. Rome. Um, uh, I lived in, I lived in New York or outside of New York till I was about, till 14. And I had a bunch of, of, of uh, encounters with Zappa for starting from 13 and 14. Pretty amazing, including once he gave me a ride to his own concert. That's a whole story. That's a whole other story. But uh, yeah. Bunch of stuff. Then at 14, I went to Rome and I went to high school there two years. And while I was there, I, I met and started playing with this guy, Jean-Luc Ponty, who's a great violinist. He made a brief appearance in that Zappa movie the other night. Mm -hmm. uh, and he was playing at this club right down the street from me. So I went and I was, I was pretty bold, you know, in those days. And I, I said, um, you know, I live right down the street. Can I sit in with you guys? And he just looked at me like, the balls on this kid you know <laughs> but i did the very first night i went there i started and so whenever john luke would come to rome i'd jam with him he was involved with zappa he was just started getting involved so there was a connection there i ended up playing with him in london too at ronnie scott's club but um, then when i came back at 16 then i went to berkeley and i i graduated high school early they john luke ponty actually wrote a letter to berkeley saying you should really let this kid in. Wow. So they helped me, you know, economically and stuff. And then the reason I left Rome, the reason I left early is my father died in a car accident. Mm. So our, our little family just kind of, it was just crushing as you can imagine. So I got into Berkeley a year early and my mother moved to New York and my sister was already in college. Then I started, uh, 
going to Berkeley. And I wasn't at Berkeley for more than a few weeks in a dorm when someone came up to me and said, you know Frank Zappa, right? I said, yeah. They said, well, he's playing right down the street. I mean, he's not playing down the street. He's down the street at this club. And so I was too young to even get into the club, but I looked older then, you know. <laughs> so I, I got my way into the club and ended the And of course, he hadn't seen me in two years. He was like, hey, you know. And so then I ended up sitting at a table with, with him and George Duke and Ian Underwood, Ainsley Dunbar, all these great people. And the Cannonball Adderley was playing and all this stuff. And, uh, and then it just went on from there. He said, uh, why don't you come to the sound check tomorrow? You know, so, and then I, I went and watched the sound check, brought this girl who I, was tr who I was trying to impress and hadn't until that point, but that did the trick. A Frank Zappa sound check, you know. And so anyway, so then, you know, then I started seeing him again in Boston, whenever he'd come to Boston. Then he invited me down in New York and, you know, we had a whole bunch of adventures. But yeah, first came Rome, then came Berkeley. I only, I was only at Berkeley for a year. Mm -hmm. yeah. And then the other Boston connection is your connection to who would become the cars. Yeah. Well, right away at Berkeley, I mean, probably within the first week, I met Greg Hawks, who's the keyboard player of the cars. And we've been bosom buddies ever since. And so uh, Greg and I um, and a wonderful drummer named Ron Riddle started our own various bands and things. And uh, I was only there for a year, but we all moved out to the classic musician's house in the country where we used to just play and the rent was really cheap and all that. And then we hooked up with Rick Ocasek and, and Ben Orr and formed a band called Richard and the Rabbits. <laughs> <laughs> so before Greg was a car, he was a rabbit, you know. <laughs> Actually, for him, between being a car, between a rabbit and a car, he joined Martin Mall and became a furniture because the band was called Martin Mall and His Fabulous Furniture. Uh huh. So my friend Greg went from being a rabbit to a furniture to a car. So yes, yeah, so then we had a band with uh, we merged Rick and Ben with our three piece. Uh -huh. Yeah, and then we had a great time. And then what what happened? Like uh, what 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 was the catalyst that then you guys eventually did your separate things and did you come out here or what what happened next? Well, we had a nice run. Um, we it was a great band live. People loved it. And we were getting popular around Boston. We did quite a lot of recording, but there always seemed to be something slightly star-crossed in this band. Mm -hmm. um, an example of which is things were really heating up and both Rick and Ben's wives worked at Warner Electra Atlantic at the time. And they had heard about us. And so we got invited to play for all of the executives at this like clam bake on an island, you know, the, Martha's Vineyard or somewhere like that. Uh, Nantucket, no, Martha's Vineyard, I think. So we thought, great, we're getting every one of the executives are gonna hear us all at the same time and they've all been primed for this. So we went and set up and we had this beautiful setup in this big field. And meanwhile, all the executives are up one layer up getting drunk and eating lobster and having, you know, baked clams. <laughs> and we're all ready to go. 
And so finally we start playing. Sound is great. Everything is good. The, the people are starting to like filter down and all of a sudden it just burst out rainstorm. And we've got all this electric equipment and we're outside, right? <laughs> so we have to stop playing before someone gets electrocuted. And you know, most of the executives hadn't even made it down. And we were like, oh man, how could this, it's such a beautiful setup and rain. And, and we're underneath this like tunnel getting dry from the rain. This is a classic moment. <laughs> and this guy walks up to us and says, <clears throat> It's really a shame you guys got cut off and I know you think nobody heard you, but I want you to know that I heard you. You sounded great. So we're all like, oh, I wonder who this guy is. And then he said, and the kids loved you. And we're looking at each other, the kids? It turned out he was the headmaster of a developmentally disabled school <laughs> and they were up in the field and so they were they're the, so a bunch of a bunch of uh, you know ten year olds with developmental problems loved us, <laughs> but the record executives didn't didn't hear us. And then just one more uh, instant from that day, so we thought, oh well, damn. We went and got our lobster dinners, and then, okay, well, at least we're going to get a lobster. And Ron, the drummer, puts his lobster dinner down on the ground for a minute. And Ben Orr, who was the singer and bass player of the Cars, backs his car up and goes right over the lobster dinner. And oh, and and God. and Ron's like, this is like this is the one thing we get out of it. And there's a cloud. Ben rolls the thing down. He goes, "Oops!" He goes, "That show is." Oh God! <laughs> so you lost your lobster. So, <laughs> yeah, he lost the. Anyway, Ben ended up sharing his lobster dinner with Ron. So. Anyway, a lot of stuff happened. Finally, there was going to be one more shot. The, the Warner's people felt bad that this whole thing had blown up. So they invited us to play at an indoor function um, where it couldn't possibly be rained out. Right. And I was already yeah. ready. To, I, I had ready to call it just because, you know, this thing just kept not quite firing. And Rick Arcastic just begged me, just one more gig. These guys are all coming. Just please, just do this one gig. Okay. So we go to this thing, it's at an indoor roller skating rink. And it was a uh, after show party for the band Foghat happened to be, but mm -hmm. anyway, so as we enter the building, we notice there's all these metal trays that these women are wheeling around. I kind of wonder what, 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 what this thing is that stuff on the trays. We get all set up, we get ready to go. All the people start pouring in from the concert. And next thing we, as we find out what were on those trays, whipped cream pies. And everyone who enters the roller skating rink was given a whipped cream pie. And now the air is full of flying cream pies, some of which are hitting our amplifiers and stuff. Here we go. Now this we're going to get electric. That is a rainstorm. <laughs> electric. That was the last show we ever did. Oh. Um, so anyway, um, it always, that's what I mean by Star Cross. We're just about to hit, mm -hmm. and these things would happen. And so we ended up playing. and. And then I, I ended up, I left town and I came back. The paper, which was like the Village Voice, the, the, the Boston, the real paper, mm -hmm. had a thing about this event. And it talks about, you know, the whipped cream pies and everybody's on roller skates and da 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 da. And the very last sentence was Richard and the Rabbits, comma, a band, comma, also played. 
Excellent. Oh. Okay, that's it. <laughs> you got upstaged by the cream pies. We were upstaged by whipped cream pies. Yeah. <laughs> but we all stayed friends and I ended up playing on Rick's first solo album and you know, stuff like that after. But that was the end of Richard and the Rabbits. Yeah. Wow. So then did you, <laughs> did you end up moving away? Did you come to yeah. the West Coast? I what? did. I moved for a while after that. I lived in Bethesda, Maryland near D.C. And the drummer and I both moved down there. And we did a bunch of stuff down there. Um, and it was during that time, it was another year and a half or so went by. And then Rick and Ben, Greg just decided to give it one more shot as a band and then boom, mm -hmm. they sold 6 million copies of their first album. Yeah, what do you know? Yeah. <laughs> and, you were, and you were fortunate enough to go to the, to the induction at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame for the Cars. Which it was last year. Was it last year? It was. Yeah, it was. Yeah, I was. Well, I've, this year has been so weird that it's hard yeah, to keep no. track. It was um, 2018 mm. and 2018. And, and that that's another story. I don't know if you want to hear that. but <laughs> Sure. Well, I mean, and that brought you full circle with them to be. Able it to did. It, it did. And it, it was incredible. Um, I happened to be in Pittsburgh where my mother lives and she had just gotten out of the hospital. So I was there to kind of take care of her and hang out with her. And in the intervening years, I'd become good friends and jamming buddies with this character, Paul Allen, mm -hmm. who's an amazing guy who co-founded Microsoft mm -hmm. among many other things. But we were jamming buddies and stuff and I'm in Pittsburgh and the phone rings and it was, it was Paul's uh, assistant and she said, Paul has tickets for the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, but he can't go. He'd like to know, you would like to use his hotel suite and, and have his tickets. Gee. Right. <laughs> yeah. No, he would invite me, invited me to, oh, he was a magic man, invited me to all kinds of things. So I said, well, that's really sweet and thank Paul, but I'm in, uh, you know, I'm in Pittsburgh and, well, they knew I was in Pittsburgh. He knew I was in Pittsburgh. But, you know, and I'm taking care of my mom. And you know, I, I can't really leave here. And, and she said, oh, he was so hoping he, you could go because he knew about my history with the cars and they were being inducted. I said, well, you know, if some miracle happens, I'll call you back, but I don't think it's possible. So I hang up the phone. My mother has been hearing my side of the conversation. And she said, honey, did you say Cleveland? Which is where the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame is? I said, yeah. She said, Cleveland is like an hour and a half drive from here. You're going. I said, well, mom, that said, no, 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 you're going. You can take my car and you know, da, da, da. So anyway, we worked that out and, uh, and Julie, my blonder half flew from LA, met me in Cleveland. And we have this gorgeous hotel suite overlooking the water there. And we go over to where the, the induction ceremony is. We have these tickets, we don't know where they are. And someone's leading us there and they keep leading us closer and closer and closer and closer and closer. We're sitting at the maybe third table dead center from the stage. And the next table is where the cars are sitting. And Greg knew I was coming. Uh-huh. But Rick and I, there was a real surprise there. So I hadn't seen Rick in a while. We had a real lovey-dovey, huggy, mm -hmm. beautiful last time together. And he passed away. Right. Like last year. That was last year, right, right. Yeah. 
so we had a fantastic reunion and 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 then you know it was just couldn't have been more lovely beautiful so well and and you mentioned uh a very important person in your life of course paul allen um, yeah tell me tell me about uh, with paul and how you met him that's pretty outrageous too god these all happen these things all your life you know, your life is is you talk about mag about ma magnetic attraction and mm -hmm. works and you you are one of those people who has been touched by so many of these people yeah it just keeps happening uh it's my inexplicable life you know oh uh, that happened because uh i have a dear friend the actor named michael nuri Mm -hmm. You know, flash dance the story. Really, yes. yeah, 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 yeah. We've we're friends against since I was a teenager, uh, and Michael belongs to the cigar club in Beverly Hills. I used to go there sometimes and have a cigar with him. So he had given a CD of of stuff I had done. I was working on to another guy at the cigar club who I didn't know, and I was driving in the valley one day in traffic, and and I got a phone call. And uh, the guy says, hi, my name is Chris. You don't know me. I'm a friend of Michael Nuri's from the Cigar Club. I heard your CD. It's unbelievable. Um, I would love to meet you. And he said something about Paul Allen, about how he does stuff. With, and that didn't really register. I knew who Paul right. Allen was, but I didn't quite get it. So I, I, I went and met this guy at the Cigar Club one, one day. And he said, your stuff is incredible. How are you thinking of, of publicizing it? And I thought, well, you know, I've encountered all, or played with all these various people. I thought rather than any blurb a publicist could write or something I could write just to get some quotes from people I've, and the people I'm thinking of are Peter Gabriel and Bono and Neil Young. If I could get like three, three great quotes, I think that's all I need. And so he opens up his laptop and then there's a picture of, of, Peter Gabriel and him on a boat somewhere and then he goes and flips through the thing and there's Bono you know <laughs> with this other guy I didn't know and he said I don't know Neil Young but I know these other guys and I'm kind of going what is this you know what <laughs> and it turns out he was sort of a social director uh and good friend with with Paul Allen mm -hmm. so he said he said you know Paul's got to meet you he'll you know he's a huge Jimi Hendrix freak and I had done some Hendrix stuff on there. And he said, uh, I said, sure, I'd love to meet him. Yeah. So cut to the, the NAM show in January where there's like 110,000 people mm -hmm. in this huge mass. And I happen to be there, standing there with the same guy, Michael Murray. And he gets a call. And the call was, do you by any chance happen to know where Fusby Morse is? And he said, he's standing right next to me. <laughs> Which Why, I yes, was. I Yes. And so he answered me the phone and he goes, hi, this is Chris. Remember we met the thing. It's Paul Allen's birthday. He's having a party and he would love if you could come and sit in and, you know, play and jam with the band. So I'm like, okay, sure. So, <laughs> so Michael and I drive up from Anaheim to this unbelievable place he has up above the Beverly Hills hotel up there in Beverly Wood. Uh, Oh, and, and the guy, Chris, who was the go-between, had, had kept mentioning all these names, you know, Robbie Robertson, this and that. 
And you know, I've lived in Hollywood for years. You, you get tired of name dropping, it's meaningless. It's like, it's okay, yeah, right, right, right. So Michael and I walk down this long set of stairs into this party and the very first person I see is Robbie Robertson. And so I'm going, maybe this guy isn't totally full of shit. This, this, that's Robbie Robertson. And, uh, and he says to me, because I'd never met Robbie before, he said, oh, I hear you're a really great guitarist. I'm looking forward to hearing you play. I said, oh, great to meet you, blah, blah, blah. And then this, this, this big guy in kind of business attire comes walking up over to me and goes, I really hope you come, hi, I'm Paul. I really hope you'll come sit in with the band. I said, sure, absolutely. And uh, so I remember I got a drink and a band was playing and they were playing, you can't always get what you want. And halfway to the stage was this gorgeous mic'd up grand piano. And they got, and I sat down at the piano and it got to the part where it's, you know, I don't, it's not on, but, but if you try sometimes, it's this descending thing, you uh -huh. know, just, I, you know, I think this is on. Oops. So much for that. Hold on. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Technical issues, technical keyboard issues. But if you try something, you just might, whatever it is, right? Uh -huh. And I, I just, I played that thing exactly like it. And Robbie Robertson just walked up and he went, guitar player, huh? <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, and then I got, you know, uh, whatever it was. And so then I got up with the band. I remember the first thing I played with them was I Shot the Sheriff. And me and this guy, Paul, are just getting along like a house on fire on guitars. Had this great night. It was the first time I'd ever been anywhere with Michael Nury where no one was paying any attention to him. Because mm. he's this gorgeous, yes. you know, actor. Beautiful man. And I'm yeah. always standing there waiting while girls are hitting on him and stuff. And this Paul Madden was like, oh yeah, hi. You know, he cared less. He wanted to meet the guitar player. Wow. So we played and played and played. And then, uh, Maybe uh, 2.30, 3 o'clock in the morning, he said, well, this has been amazing. I, I want to get together with you again soon. And, and then he was going to go up to bed, and he got in this elevator to leave. And meanwhile, the people are still there because it's a really nice party. And then about 10 minutes later, he came back down, and Ulysses says into my ear, you want to play some more Hendrix? Uh -huh. Sure. So we played till 4 in the morning. Yeah, because that's the thing that a lot of people don't realize that Paul Allen was a really gifted musician. And yeah. Passion. Yeah, he's a songwriter and guitarist and he just kept getting better and better. And he got to play with, you know, he got to play with, you know, Clapton and Santana and Jimmy Page and every, everybody because they all wanted to meet him. Um, so anyway, so that was the first night. And I remember the next morning, because it was up really late and, and I, you know, if you come home at 4.30, your, 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 your lady friend kind of wants to, you know, where the hell were you? <laughs> what were you doing? Well, I hope you've been having fun. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, like, she knew I was going to this thing, but I come in really, really late. So we, we have the TV on. We're watching the NFC Championship football game. He's the owner of the Seattle Seahawks. Right. And they're playing this game. So we're watching TV. I'm half awake. And there's, all of a sudden, there's a shot of Paul on the sideline. I say, that's the guy. <laughs> That's the guy I was playing with last night. He owns that football team. You know, he owns the Portland Trailblazers basketball team and aerospace and God knows all sorts of stuff. Right. 
so that started a friendship uh, that just went on for many years until he passed away. And that was devastating when he did. Yeah. And then he would kind of fly you out to like every time he'd have one of these things and these mystery spots and you were around the world and then he would just fly you out and you wouldn't know where you were going until until well, the well the first time I didn't know where we were going and that was it that same week like less than a week after that amazing first night I got a call from the guy Chris saying that was incredible that night um I have three questions for you he said do you have a valid passport what are you doing for the next week or so and are you certified in scuba diving and I just said, well, that has to be the three most fascinating questions anybody's ever asked me. So I went, I said, I loaned, got my, my passport's good for another seven years. I've got stuff I'm doing, but I can change it. I said, and no, I'm not certified in scuba diving. He but laughed. I can learn. <laughs> yeah. Uh, he said, he just laughed and said, okay, be, uh, I'm going to get back to you later. Be expecting a call and see if you can clear your schedule. Wow. So... Then, you know, meanwhile, I was like going, what the hell's happening? Passport, scuba diving, you know. <clears throat> so, <laughs> again, this really happened. Wow. So he, the guy calls back and said, um, uh, okay, uh, Paul would like to take you on a trip. Can you be at his house at, it was like 11 p.m. or midnight, you know, uh, tomorrow, you know, the next day. I said, sure. So I go to his house and, and, and I said, well, what do I need to bring instruments or anything? And he said, oh, no, no, they've got, he's got all sorts of stuff. They've got tons of guitars and whatever. And I don't know where we're going or anything. So I go to his house and I go to the screening room where this guy Chris is and five very lovely young women who were all going somewhere with us. And Paul goes in and goes, oh, so great you can come. And I'm, I still don't know where we're going. And so I, all I know is that we're going to go on a plane to somewhere. And then he says, well, we were going to go to the Cayman Islands, but the weather isn't right there. I, so I hope that's okay. I'm going to, we're going to go to uh, Cozumel. As you do. <laughs> right. Sure. Like, sorry, we're not going to the Caymans, but the weather's not right. So we're going to go... <laughs> So got in this gorgeous private plane with a very small group of people, like eight of us or something, and then flew to this trip that went to Cozumel, Belize, Tulum, the Mayan ruins of Tulum, but spent about a week on, on this gorgeous boat of his uh, with occasional stops on land, jamming, eating incredible food, just... And, and that's where I really got to know him. And so this was the first trip of that first trip. thing. It, it was the first like, trip. You're thinking, what did I do in a past life? That yeah, I no, no. Now? No, it was, it was amazing from beginning to end. And, and I had these, um, these kind of Pink Floyd pajamas, you know, with a prism, you know, like the dark side mm -hmm. of the moon yeah. prism on them. And it was morning, one of the days I got up and... And um, Paul came walking out. I was sitting there and, and he said, you're always about five feet off the ground, aren't you? Or something like that. <laughs> and then he, he walked past me. And then the guy, Chris, told me this later. He said, he said Paul said, Busby's got Pink Floyd pajamas. I can't believe it. Like, 
he was he was and so meanwhile from the ship i ended up calling julie and going we got to find him a pair of pink floyd pajamas which my mother had gotten a target for 20 bucks and there's this guy with billions and billions of dollars so I, I ended up getting him a pair of Pink Floyd pajamas, which I gave him the next time I saw him. Which is what, it's like, that answers the question of what do you, what do you give, give the guy who has everything? Yeah, the guy who literally has everything, a pair of Pink Floyd pajamas. And then uh, all this time you have been play, like doing sessions, right? And, yeah. and playing with the touring, I, I, touring with various people and working with various people, touring at times, doing recording at times, um, being in various bands. Uh, but that, that was the start of those trips. And then from then on, when we get invited to a trip, we'd at least know where it was. And then Julie got to go, which made mm -hmm. her much happier. Mm -hmm. But he took us to Super Bowls, three Super Bowls, two of which his team was playing in. Uh, incredible three-day, uh, his 60th birthday in New Orleans, you know, and it's always an amazing group of characters at all of these things, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, he, he collected musicians, you collected know. People. Did you meet, and in the course of these Paul trips, were, were you meeting more of your heroes along the way? Oh, yeah, and playing with them. Mm -hmm. um, at every one of them, yeah. I remember the trip to New Orleans. We're in this gorgeous hotel, and we're out having a drink in the courtyard. And the first person I saw, I, I had to kind of, that's who I think it is. It was. It was Nick, the drummer from Pink Floyd, Nick Mason. Mm -hmm. And then it would be like, um, oh, boy. Uh, what a color. Derek Trucks. Mm -hmm. who's an incredible man, his wife, Susan Tedeschi. Mm -hmm. he, they were regulars. Uh, Robbie Robertson was a regular. Eric Idle from Monty mm -hmm. Python. <laughs> and then brilliant tech people, you know, and then Bill Gates is over here. And uh, Steve Wozniak, who's mm -hmm. the co-inventor of Apple. And there'd be uh, the guy behind Game of Thrones, you know, George Martin, of the big, yep. yeah, him. Uh, you know, and then Jeff Goldblum, the actor, and yep. uh, just and one great musician after another. Um, lots of heroes, yeah. And so, yeah, he he'd host these amazing parties and these boat trips, where we get these. We got this invitation that was in the form of a treasure chest, mm -hmm. an old, gnarly, beaten up treasure chest really heavy you know and you open it up and there was all these little lacquered things and it was inviting us for you know a trip to the south china seas to vietnam and and borneo and you know <laughs> stuff like that so then we would know where we were going a few months in advance and have the time to get ready for it but then there'd be these quick surprise ones like yeah and the whole time i knew him that would be happening wow this, and yeah. I mean, talk about being, I mean, that's like, that's magical stuff. That's, yeah. that's an incredible, an incredible association yeah. and, and, and what a gift. Uh, yeah. And I go from wondering how I was going to pay the light bill to the total app of luxury and then back with nothing in between, mm -hmm. which is a, my life has been like that, you know? Yeah. 
you, you're like playing the four seasons in Hong Kong or something, and then you come back and you're like, oh, I need to, I need to pay my. Oh yeah, the the, the, <laughs> the peninsula in Beijing, you know, one of the greatest hotels in the world. Yeah. I still have the slippers from there because I love them so much. Oh, we'd be in these suites and gorgeous things, and everything's paid for. We go go on a, a 10, 12, 15 day trip and spend like eighteen cents, you know, a dollar fifty uh, somewhere. Everything is like just completely covered, but really elegant. It's like totally unpretentious. Mm-hmm. You know, someone who has that much money but knew how to like do 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 with it elegantly. Right, 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 right. And would invite all of his friends to be part of it. Yeah. Yeah, incredibly money, generous man money doesn't buy taste and so somebody who has taste and no. is able to just like bring joy like use that wealth to bring joy to other people which it sounds like that was really his mission that was his mission as well as things that were good for all, literally all of humanity like ocean health and brain research and how, finding a cure for alzheimer's and really noble things yeah I mean, like the opposite of a Trump who will just mm-hmm. use the money to, to like more gold on the toilet. You know? Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, every time Donald Trump would come up in conversation, Paul would just roll his eyes and, you know, Trump, uh, Paul sold his, one of his planes to Trump, which was the, was the plane that Trump was flying around on mm. before he became president. Mm-hmm. And when Paul had it, it was beautiful, gorgeous, beautiful colors. And then Trump just like did this tasteless, horrible, fake gold, everything, you know, ostentatious. And so it would come up. But that was one guy that Trump paid. Like Trump is famous for not paying his bills. Right, right, right. He did pay for the plane. Paul Paul got every single nickel from him that he, (laughs) in front. Wow. Yeah. So then, so then, you know, um, and the other thing is a totally different subject, but I, I know that you also, um, you do composition, you do, and you've done film scores and stuff like that. Wow. Yeah, I've done quite a few. Um, I moved out to LA at the end of 1986. And uh, a dear friend of mine from high school in Rome was already working as a film composer and I was staying at his house before I can find a place here. And I hadn't been here a week when he got offered a film score. He didn't want to do it because it didn't pay enough. It like it paid $5,000 or something. Right. And he was like, you know, whatever. And he said, why don't you do it? I said, I've never done a movie score, you know, and there are a whole lot of stuff. He said, oh, I, I can, I'll, I'll just, you know, you have to learn oh, a lot about t- timing. Of things. Yeah. And it was a very quick, I had to do it very quickly. It was a movie called Dolls. And so I got thrown into the deep end and, and my friend Richard Band coached me through it. I never even met the director um, who was working on another movie in Europe at the time. So usually, you know, you and the director. So I just had to do all of it. And luckily the director was thrilled with the music. He was very happy with it. Then I started all of a sudden I was a movie scorer. So I did about, I think, nine features probably. And then I also did a bunch of stuff like Comedy Central series and episodes, animation. 
and I had much more fun doing comedy music than, than like horror movies and you know, the stuff you do when you first start. But to, to this day, I'd still do scoring, um, but much shorter things like commercials and stuff. So try to get like more, more buck for the bang, you know, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. instead of doing. You know, it's interesting because in that first, in that first gig that your friend handed to you and, and helped you to do, you, you could have easily said, oh, I've never done this before. And I, I, you could have talked your, you, you could have talked yourself out of it, but instead yeah. you did it. And then it led to this whole career, this whole other part of your career. Yep. Because you said yes. Yeah, actually I could have talked myself out of just about everything we've gone over. I could have talked myself out of, you know, I could, all of the people I could have not approached, you have to get over that hump. Mm -hmm. like there's Frank Zappa standing there and, and he's got no reason to talk to you and you're a little kid but he's your hero so you know you just do it yeah and, and you know because I had had really good experiences approaching heroes and people of stature of various sorts when I was a kid especially like Frank that made it much easier the rest of my life if he had shot me down or been weird to me yeah that could have changed the entire course of my life yeah. Because you learn. Say yes to things, you know. Give it a shot. I remember, so one of your collaborators, Bono, um, I had a, a, a story about, it. they came through, this was during the, um, they, were, they were filming Rattlin' Hum. Rattlin' Hum. Rattlin' Hum at, uh, um, in, um, in Tempe, Arizona, and um, I knew they were staying at the at the Biltmore Hotel, and I was there. This was in Phoenix, and um, and I was walking out to the parking lot, and I saw Bono standing all by himself. He was waiting for whatever, and he says, "Excuse me, you haven't seen a limo anywhere, have you? You know, <laughs> have you seen a limo anywhere?" And, uh, and 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 I said, "Oh no!" And and he could tell. I mean, I'm I'm 18 years old. I'm just a young kid, you know, and he says, come over and keep me company. Like it was the sweetest thing because he knew that yeah. that meant something to me. Yeah. So then I went over and then we're sort of chatting and he had this, he was, he was trying to undo a knot in this watch chain, like a pocket watch. Uh -huh. And uh, he says, are you any good with knots? And, uh, and, and I said, sure. And he put, and I could tell the moment he knew that he would, trust me with this he put the watch in my hand and his manager paul mcginnis came up and they started talking and they introduced me to them him and and so meanwhile i'm i'm thinking i hope i don't break the chain i don't feel like a, so i'm like i have to get this knot out so i got the knot out and he said thanks so much i've been trying to get i've been trying to fix that for like a week now thank you so much <laughs> and and then we just talked and we talked he had a um he had a um uh uh, Native American um, uh, silver and it was a silver and turquoise star. Yeah. It was Navajo and my parents collected Native jewelry. And I said, well, that looks yeah. like Navajo. We started talking about that and whatever. So like I had this amazing conversation that lasted for like a half an hour while he was waiting for his limo to take him to sound check. And then, and then, you know, he, you know, gave me a kiss on the cheek and shook my hand and said, oh, Dana, it's been very nice to chat with you. You know, thanks so much. And I hope you're coming to the show. And it was just, it was the sweetest thing. And it was and another example of, you know, 
um, meeting your heroes because I had been yeah. a massive fan of the Joshua Tree and and oh, yeah. like I loved these guys, you know, and and to have met Bono and he turned out to be just as kind and sweet and nice and thoughtful and all that as I hoped that he would be. So that's, oh, that's my Bono. Lovely. <laughs> he's a lovely guy. He's a lovely guy. And over the years, I've heard people, you know, make fun of him because he can he can be, you know, he can be quite, um, I don't know what the word is. Uh, he's a lovely, lovely guy. He's a lovely guy. And Joshua Tree was around the time when I met all them because mm -hmm. I was on tour. I was playing guitar for Lou Reed. Mm -hmm. And we were on tour with U2, Peter Gabriel, Sting, the Neville Brothers, Brian Adams, Joan Baez, and then various guests would play at, at different cities. What a Incredible life. guests. Oh, we had, we had everybody as guests. Miles Davis, Santana, uh, Dylan played at one show, Tom Petty, Robin Williams did a comedy set. It was an incredible tour. But I got to know, you know, we're all flying around in the same plane and got to, got to know each other and had some incredible jams. That's where I really connected. But Bono and I just, it was immediately hit it off. He was, couldn't have been sweeter. Uh, and so, yeah, actually there's, a, there's some films of, of jams we did together that are, that are amazing um, from then that somebody found many years later. But that's where I got to know Peter. That's where I got to know him. And uh, and then I see him from time to time, like he showed up at Cantor's one night, mm, mm -hmm. uh, you know, where we play every week mm -hmm. when when there were when you did play. All roads lead to the kibitz room. Yeah, exactly. The kibitz room. We were playing and, you know, one night in the kibitz room, someone comes up to me, goes, there's a friend of yours is over in the restaurant, but they don't say who it is. Right. And so I don't know who I'm looking for. I walk Some over Irish to the guy. restaurant. I look around. I don't I don't see anyone obvious you know, that I know. And then all of a sudden I hear one of the waitresses say the name Bono. They're talking to each other. So I said, oh, okay, that's what I'm looking for. Cause he was facing the other way. So I saw where he was. He was there with one guy. I walked around, he looked completely shocked to see me. And he said, what are you doing here? <laughs> and I said, it just came out. I didn't say the Fockers, I said, I'm playing next door with the Thieves and Rascals. <laughs> thieves and Rascals, we play there. He said, Thieves and Rascals. And then right then you could hear the band. And as Dan uh, Rothschild was fond of saying, the Fockers go from, from magic to tragic and you uh -huh. know, very quickly. <laughs> well, luckily it wasn't a tragic moment. He was listening and it was like, mm -hmm. oh, God, the band sounds really good. He goes, you play over there? I said, yeah. And so then we hung out and had a really nice time and then, um, because we were, he was also good friends with, with Paul Allen. He, he lives in the south of France near one of Paul's mm -hmm. places and they knew each other forever. And Paul was at the TED conference, which was in Long Beach or somewhere. So I said, let's, 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 let's send a picture to Paul. He'll get a real kick out of this. And that picture you've probably seen of me and him there. We, yes. we sent it to Paul and he goes, where is this? Where are you guys? And, you know, and I've been telling him for years, it's a deli. It's right next to where I play every Tuesday. You got to come sometime, which he managed yeah. to do before he passed away. He did come. Oh, in. good. I'm glad yeah. he did. Unfortunately, he came on a night that was a little closer to tragic than magic, uh, but it was still okay. But, but the night Bono was there, the band sounded really good. So I said, every Tuesday we're here. So he knows, you know, he knew we were there.
Well, and, and that's a, the thing about the kibitz room is you never know who's going to show up. I, yeah. mean, I remember there was one night um, where there's this lovely guy who gets up on stage and he starts singing wild horses. And I'm like, oh, wow, he's amazing. Yeah. Right. And then, and then afterwards, like I, I go, I go, I'm going back to the restroom and I walk by him and I, I grab his arm and I said, that was incredible. Thank you so much. So he's like, Oh yeah. Thank you. Know, thank you for, I'm glad you enjoyed it. Whatever. Well then, then I find out that that guy is Bernard Fowler. Right, Bernard. The Stones since 1989, along with Lisa Fisher, yeah. Blondie, and all that. And yeah. I'm like, what universe are we living in? <laughs> yeah. So cool, because I didn't recognize him. And he was amazing. Yeah, Bernard's a great guy. He sounded better than Mick, actually. I mean, he's got an incredible voice. And there's so much soul and passion and just like and the version that he did was just it was it was different and it was just like oh it was amazing uh, so yeah, brad actually introduced my brad watson introduced me to 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 him so that was a, a magical moment there have been many magical moments in the kibitz room and and i'm i'm really hoping that you know i don't know when we're all going to be able to reconvene you know but um it just it's such a magical place and a and you know with magical people and and uh, amazing things happen there and uh that's where that's where i met you at the kibitz yeah so you know yeah always look forward to seeing your shining face there <laughs> yeah, um, you, you want to you want to you want to hear one bono story that's pretty yes. cool okay so we're on this tour the amnesty tour and then we had a couple of nights off in atlanta where we're going to play but there was two two days either before or after the show where we're all just camped out in this hotel and everyone's in the vibe of playing because we've been playing every night on this tour so i ended up going down to the bar there's like a bar lounge kind of place and i went down there with with bono and edge mm -hmm. and uh and larry klein mm -hmm. who's a you know producer bass player wonderful guy and so we go down to the bar and there's a band playing there and they're, I guess you call them like a costume band. Like they do a set as the Beatles and they're all wearing mm. Sgt. Pepper outfits, whatever. Mm -hmm. And so this was right around the time of, of Joshua Tree. You two are now really exploding in America. Yeah, like the biggest band in the world at this point. Yeah, the biggest band in the world. And we're in the lounge of this Ramada Inn <laughs> and we go and sit at a table getting drinks and right at our table was a big pole like almost like a barbershop pole but it was right in the middle of the room lights are pretty low and these guys are being discreet you know it's like sitting like and the band i believe they one of their sets they did as you too you know like you too with like a hat and the thing yeah so anyway during the break everyone's really itching to play so and also there was Manu Kache, who is Peter Gabriel's drummer, fantastic drummer, and uh, Aaron Neville's around. Yeah, he's there. But at our a particular table is basically the U2 guys, and Larry, the drummer, is around. Mm -hmm. So it's a break, and so and, and and Bono really wants to play. So he says to Manu and me, "Why don't you go up there and see if they'll let us, you know, sit, let us play something." And you know, there isn't a band in the world who really wants to hear that someone else wants to use their equipment. 
Right. So for these guys, this Ramada Inn was probably the best gig you know they've had in, in months. So, uh, and I'm thinking, oh boy, this is like a suicide mission. <laughs> so Manu and I, we're the two least recognizable guys. <laughs> we walk up to the stage, these guys, and I said, um, you know, there, there's a bunch of people here who would really like to play any chance we could use your equipment. And the guy looks at me like, well, you fucking out of your mind, right? Get out of and here. So, yeah. And so just as he's saying that, there's the pole, and Bono leans out from one side of the pole and goes like this, and Edge leans out the other side of the pole and goes like that. And the band guys see them and just about, you know, lose it. And so they just said, yeah, just do whatever you want. It went from get out of here to do whatever you want. So we took over the stage, um, had this amazing, again, long sort of all night jam. And Peter Gabriel at the time had this big, huge camera. He used to film every, he filmed everything on the tour with. So we got up and first it was uh, Manu, fantastic bassist named Fernando Saunders, who was in Lou's band with me. And, and Bono uh, and Larry Klein on bass. And then eventually the U2 drummer Larry got up. But we just started playing all this stuff. And, and this place is just like, word is filtering out. Oh my God, you, the Ramada Inn Lounge. Has know? never seen so much action. And it's yeah, like. <laughs> they've never seen it. And so I had a dear friend, Nick Jameson, who lived in Atlanta then. And when we took a little break, I went off and called him and said, he said, man, you got to come down to come down to the Ramada. And he said, oh, I'm mixing. So I said, I said, just put it down. Come down here now. And he did. And he was he ended up getting to play some piano. He was thrilled so that we had this incredible jam. Uh, and then word, of course, got out amongst the whole touring party. So the next night, everybody wanted to play. And then Lou Reed got up, everybody. And meanwhile, now this place is packed. Word has leaked out the Ramada in it's is, where is it's all hat where it's all <laughs> happening but the, the moment i remember was was bono leaning out from behind the pole that mischievous thing and just kind of going hey guys <laughs> but we didn't he didn't want us to go say hey the guys from the tour here but right yeah, yeah so we did we took over the next two nights for incredible jams i'll never forget wow and atlanta has not recovered <laughs> yeah <laughs> What year was that? That was that that was that was eighty seven, eighty eight. Eighty six. Eighty six. It was eighty six. It was um, and a few of these guys were at their just hot, incredible height. Peter Gabriel had done so, which is one of my favorite albums, and and you two had done Josh, which we though I don't think it was out yet. I think it hadn't come out, but they were doing some stuff from there. Right. Uh. But yeah, they uh, yeah Peter doing from so and then doing Joshua Tree. The Neville Brothers had done this Yellow Moon album, which is fantastic. Oh, I remember that, yeah. And, and Brian Adams, who's the one I always forget about, for mm -hmm. no disrespect, man, he had he had those huge run to you, you know. Yeah. He had these huge I hits. saw him in concert. He was the second show I ever saw. Wow, he sang his ass off. He's a yeah, really good he singer. Was great. Yeah. yeah. Canada's own. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Brian Adams, yeah. Yeah. So yeah, you you look on you look across the stage and there's Aaron Neville and Cyril Neville, his brother, was playing and Cyril. We did a whole set of Hendrix mm. one, on the second night. 
um, with Cyril doing most of the singing. He did great Hendrix vocals and just incredible stuff. Then we went back to the tour and playing. That's a real bonding experience. I can't imagine. I mean, that, that, so you've had these, these, these magical, epic experiences. Like, where do you go from there? <laughs> you, know? you go to trying to figure out how to pay the light bill again. Right, <laughs> right. And so what are, you, what are you working on now? Are you, do you have little projects percolating away? Are you producing anything? Or are you yeah. anything? I, I, I've just finished what is going to be an EP. I'm figuring out the best way to release it but uh three songs three pieces um you know in this day and age you have to figure out how to get things out there so people actually can will hear them and there's a chance that you can sell them so that's the part i'm working on now but i've got three pieces that are all done mixed and mastered i'm very happy with rather than trying to do a whole full-length album and cobble it together and take forever i'm just going to put those three out Mm -hmm. and see what happens. Um, anybody with a good record company listening? Time for a Fuzzy <laughs> EP. Yes. So, I'm yeah. doing that. And, uh, and then actually I have, it looks like I'm going to have an album coming out before that of all things of one of my horror movie scores. <clears throat> uh, the second movie I ever did was called Ghoulies 2. <laughs> oh, yeah. And this is one of these movies with little creatures biting people on the knees. Yep. You know, it's fantastic. It's, mm -hmm. it's not exactly Scorsese, you know, but it's, <laughs> it's a fine film. Um, but I had done the first few movies I did, the, the mixes were I never had. They were gone. The, the guy whose studio did the mixes had said he lost them. But before, when we were going into lockdown back in March or whatever, I gave myself a few projects and one was to go through a bunch of tapes I had on various formats, see if I can get them transferred and then work on finishing some stuff that has been sitting there. And in the course of doing that, I found cassettes that had the full mixes of the first two scores I did. Turns out there are a lot of harm music fans, you know, I wouldn't even know this, but they collect this stuff and there's these over the years i've gotten like people going where can i get the music to doll where can i get the music to ghoulies too and i found it and then i so i had it transferred my friend brian key who transferred them so that there were files like pro tools files and then in the middle of this i get these two different people interested in putting out record of this Coincidentally, my friend Richard Band, the one who got me started in film scoring, uh -huh. had just put out Ghoulies. The first Ghoulies came out like a week ago. And there's this company that's really into it. And when they heard that I had found the missing Ghoulies 2 score, got very excited about releasing it. So we're just finalizing a deal where the album of that score is going to come out. Wow, so it's like it has come full circle since you're yes. in 1986. Yeah. When you had your first uh, film scoring job. Right. Here it's this coming one, around full circle. Yeah, this one's from, I think, 87. And uh, I've continued to get royalties from it. I keep going, who's watching this thing? It plays <laughs> a lot on, on satellite. And there are fans of horror music all over the world. So there's going to be uh, my first album of score coming out sometimes pretty soon. Wow. And where, <coughs> where can people find that? 
Do you know yet, or I, I I don't have an address to give you yet, but I know a lot of a lot of the people that collect this stuff collect it on vinyl. Mm -hmm. So there's going to be some super duper vinyl collect uh, edition, and then on CD, wow. and then I guess there's a download. But I've seen the work this company does. They do these really elaborate you know, pr promotions and productions, uh, which is what I wish I was having for my own, you know, right. songs. <laughs> but uh, who knows? Could be the first hit album I have. Could be of horror music. <laughs> yeah. Wow. <clears throat> this is this is amazing. Well, we've come full circle, and 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 so I think this is a really good place to to tie a bow around it and thank you so much i've, I've so loved this because some of the stories you had already told me and like i remember bits and pieces of it but to have you tell them again and to be able to share them with other people is just like super. Sure. <laughs> thank you Fuzby. uh thank you dan it's been a pleasure and uh Hope to see you in the actual human flesh before too long. And Absolutely. that was the delightful Fuzby Morse, raconteur, musician extraordinaire. It was a great, great time catching up with him. I hope you enjoyed it. Um, and since we're celebrating Fuzby today, I wanted to end the show with a track from him, a recent track called A Lie is Just a Lie. I hope you enjoy. And until next time, take very good care of each other. Take good care of yourselves, and I'll see you on the other side.
Come back and buy